On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses the groundbreaking Yes album, 90125. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter, Tom Corcoran, and Ken Gregory as we return to the Yes catalog and cover 1983's groundbreaking 90125. All right, so gentlemen, shall we get back into yes? Absolutely. Yep, which seems, it it really seems appropriate, and I'm glad that Ken had suggested this, as this is, in fact, the summer where we are celebrating, both camps, the 50th anniversary of yes. So the fact that we would um, go back in to yes, and revisit the back half of the catalog is very timely, very appropriate, and I'm very, very happy that we're doing it. And what better way to get back into Yes than 90125, which is the album that, you know, brought Yes back from their small hiatus. I'm not going to say they were dead, but there was certainly a lot of questions surrounding that. And... Um, this album obviously changed everything. I'll read the the standard intro, and then we can sort of go into it here. So, 90125 was released on 7 November 1983. It was produced by Trevor Horn, and yes, it was released on the Atco label. The lineup for this particular album is John Anderson on vocals, Chris Squire on bass guitars and vocals, Trevor Rabin, the newcomer on guitars, keyboards and vocals, Alan White, drums, percussion, backing vocals, and he's credited on the wikis as the Fairlight CMI. And returning from yesteryear, Tony Kay on keyboards. 90125 is the 11th studio album by the English progressive rock band Yes, released on 7 November 1983 by Atco Records. After the group disbanded in 1981 when they had toured drama, bassist Chris Squire and drummer Alan White formed Cinema with guitarist and singer-songwriter Trevor Rabin and original Yes keyboardist Tony Kay, who had left in 1971 and began recording an album. They adopted a more commercial and pop-oriented musical direction as the result of their new material, much of which derived from Raven's demos, with former Yes singer Trevor Horn as their producer. During the mixing stage, former Yes singer John Anderson, who had left in 1980, accepted the invitation to return and record the lead vocals, and subsequently Cinema changed their name to Yes. 90125 was released to a generally positive reception and introduced the band to a new generation of fans. It reached number five on the U.S. Billboard 200 and number 16 on the U.K. Albums chart 
and remains their best-selling album, with over 3 million copies sold in the U.S. Of the album's four singles, Owner of a Lonely Heart was the most successful and is their only song to top the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and Hot Mainstream Rock Track charts. Cinema earned the group a Grammy Award for Best Rock Instrumental Performance. Yes, toured the album in 1984 and 1985, which included two headline shows at the inaugural Rock in, Rock in Rio Festival. The album was remastered in 2004 with previously unreleased bonus tracks. That, gentlemen, is what we have in front of us here this evening. This is funny because it was probably right around this time that my family finally got cable television and I was able to experience MTV, which up until then I had not. And I was very, I felt very deprived and I harbored resentment against my parents because of that fact. But I do remember seeing the video for Own Over Lonely Heart. I knew of, yes, my brothers being older listened to, you know, certain classic rock radio stations. My oldest brother, Len, I believe, had um, had a, a vinyl of classic, yes, or maybe it was a CD. I don't even know. doesn't matter. I knew, I knew who yes was. I knew that this was a yes. I knew that it was wildly popular. But that's really about all I knew. And it was sometime between... Obviously, 1983 and 1987, when Big Generator came out, that I started to figure this whole thing out. Mm. But in real time, I was close, but I wasn't anywhere near being aware of what this album was, why it was important, or why it was different from what had come before. This album, you know, what can you say about it? And I, I think at this point... You know, if we're going to talk about the lore, I will send our listeners to probably the most recent episode of Yes Music Podcast where they cover the singles for 90125 for lore because I would never be able to cover the history of how this band came together better than than Kevin did in in that in that lead in. But suffice it to say, and, and we already talked a little bit about it, you know, after drama, everyone decided it wasn't going to work. Steve and Jeff go to Forum Asia, Chris and Alan, who were at the, you know, pretty much the, the peak of their powers as a rhythm section, decide they want to do something else. And eventually, you know, Trevor Rabin comes in. And of course, you know, it's it's fairly well documented that John Anderson came in kind of late in the process and ch changed some things. I, I want to say it was either the yes years video or the video that came out for the union tour where Trevor Raven addresses this a little bit. And, you know, like he, he talks about changes and he's like, there wasn't a plan to have, you know, me sing the verse and John sing the chorus. That's, you know, certain parts didn't fit well with John. And so, you know, I, I think really when you talk about this and, and knowing what I know now and thinking about it, really, I don't think you can overestimate the impact that Trevor Horn had on this album. It is, I mean, the production is phenomenal. Just, I mean, the way they, they brought all the pieces together and I mean, 
in terms of being a producer, I don't know that that Trevor Horn has a, a higher point at, at this point. Oh. And it's important to know or to, to point out that this was never meant to be a yes record. And yet somehow it is a phenomenal yes record. Well, Joe, you did a, a great job with that introduction. Um, so great. You just covered a couple of my points. <laughs> so. did, he, did, he, did he ruin your fun factoid of the night yet? Not yet. Okay, but, good. Um, I will, I will, I will have one uh, for, for yes. Um, first of all, I mean, yeah, I mean, looking into the making of this album, there's just so many, it, it, it really mirrors the, the, the great music that comes with it, like the, the making of it. it. There's just so many things that blow your mind when you learn about them. And it's just, I mean, even the fact that you would have a conversation with someone, um, Trevor Horn, who had sang on their last record and said, Hey, can you sing on this new one? And he says, well, no, I I've been doing more producing. I'd rather produce it. And then them go, Oh, sure. Okay. You know, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's even without having a lot of the big names under your belt, you know, Trevor Horn was able to do this and do it well and do it with i mean the dynamic of trevor raven coming in and arguably you know sort of being a a big head if you will i mean he's sort of he say so he's very confident um with with his abilities so to speak and um him sort of having um john anderson you know take a, a more back seat in in things is 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 just uh, somewhat incredible I, I just to have everything come together the way it did um from a standpoint of the making of the album is as impressive as the music itself and i'm having touched upon that yet but uh, i mean this is a really interesting record on many many fronts so i'm really excited to be talking about this tonight yeah there's a lot of provocative statements being thrown around which i love at the beginning of the palaver i also love it whenever we start a conversation by saying something like what can you say about this album because we're gonna say a shit <laughs> ton about it tonight <laughs> You know, so that one thing, true. Joe, you said, you, you said, um, you know, Trevor, Trevor Horn, like I, I, you said, it, I forget which exactly what you said, but, but basically this was his best effort, his, his crowning achievement. And while it's certainly, it certainly is, I think we could have a whole episode on, you know, Trevor Horn from 1980 to um, 1995 um, and, and debate, you know, what his crowning achievement actually is, um, guys. Well, that, I'm, that, I'm that's interesting, Paul, and and not to interrupt you, but I, I have heard an interview with Trevor Horn saying that exact thing. He actually thinks that nine oh nine oh one two five is his crowning achievement. He he's uh, extremely I, proud. Of 
Yeah, I don't know that I would argue it, but I would love I would love to, you know, take it head on with um, you know, a couple of the seal albums and um and some of the other things that he's done. You know, one of the things I guess two things that have struck me as I've thought about this, and, and I'm glad that you sort of you know, shed us the accountability of of maintaining the lore for this uh story, Joe. <laughs> um, I think you're right. I think Kevin has a, a sick amount of knowledge around around all of this stuff. And, you know, you can get a, a great, you know, sampling of how it all sort of comes together from the band's point of view in their, in their documentary from yes years or yes shows or whatever it was, I guess it was yes years right around the time of union. Yeah, um, I believe so. You know, but two things that struck me is that Trevor Rabin was very keen to get signed during this period. He was running around doing all kinds of stuff, trying to find the right, group of folks to play his songs and to get songs to play and to and to record and he was working with a great many people and i think we've talked through many stories off you know on our car rides and and conversations and at some point in time he hooks up with these guys and they start cinema but all of the while they are trying to figure out what they're, what they're going to be. Right. And listening to the demos that are available in that 902190124 collection, right. The other thing that has struck me. So the one thing is that they were shopping around, they were looking for what they were going to do. They were eager to figure it out. And the other thing is goodness gracious, what you can do with only like half of a good song. Like when you listen to the demos of owner of a lonely heart and it can happen, like they were only half baked and the original version of, of owner of a lonely heart. It's comical to hear Trevor Horn talk about it in that interview, but it's even more comical to hear it in its actual demo form. Like that, the fact that that song actually became what it was and and had the success that it had it would have never happened had it not been for all of those folks coming together at the right time and trevor horn sort of masterfully bringing it all together and the openness that trevor rabin we we characterize him as a showboat as a rock star as an egomaniac and yet he had a complete song that he basically let everybody tear apart and it, it ended up being a 100% better. And the thing that strikes me about that today is I was listening to the Hold Your Fire episode that you and Ken did, Joe. And you guys talk about, in that episode, you talk about how when we were young, it was basically just one of us was always in charge of whatever song it was. Because if anyone else tried to mess with it, we would get all pissed off and we wouldn't like it. There's such an amazing amount of trust and, and a mutual desire to make the best song to basically take something that you've already created and let someone rip it apart and do something new new to it and and thank goodness they did it because it it turned into something that was just brilliant so you know and, and it's funny paul because we've we've talked before at some length on trevor rabin and whether or not he's a an egomaniac um you know as you pointed out you know 
rock stud kind of guy. And, you know, for every story that supports that theory, there's a story that balances it out, much like you were just describing. And and even in that, that Trevor Horn interview that we were sort of having fun with last night, you know, throughout that entire story, yes, Trevor is allowing... Um, Trevor Rabin is allowing everyone to rewrite Owner of a Lonely Heart and redo the, you know, the uh, the, the lyrics and, and put it all together. And throughout all of it, he keeps going back and trying to fuck with the board and get the snare sound that he wants. So true. <laughs> you know, it's a hard it is a hard I mean, any kind of creativity, right? Like you have to allow yourself to be edited to the extreme. And I can tell you that you know when i when i collaborate with my good friend dave dewitt who also happens to be the author of the progressive palaver theme song he is constantly saying to me oh you should rewrite this verse oh you should do this oh you should switch this hey you need vocals here you and i'm like no dude i'm like it's done the song's over it's already written it's really hard to open yourself to to doing that. And it's probably taken me the better part of my 48 years to realize that when you allow that to happen, it actually makes it better. Um, extra input yeah. makes it, makes it better. And, um, and Trevor Raven certainly and, and I, took that advice. Yeah. And I think 90125 really speaks to that. And to the extent that we want to talk about limitations, perhaps of big generator, I think that, maybe is the other side of the coin, but we'll get there mm. next, next episode as well. Yes. But, but certainly for this one, again, I, I want to, I do want to stay within the Eden that is 90125 mm -hmm. because for me, there's almost nothing, nothing that is wrong with this album. It is just mm. simply amazing from top to bottom. I, I, I you know, and, it's amazing when you think about it because I, I don't even – I find myself without the words right now to, to speak about this as at sort of a 50,000-foot a, a level because there's all – there's always the question of, you know, is Trevor Yes real Yes and, and is it progressive or is it commercial or, you know, all of that. And I – and again, it's it's – as Tom pointed out, when you think about the circumstances under which this album came together, which are remarkable enough, and then to have it come out the way it did, it it boggles the mind. You know, the the, the biggest difference here is that Trevor Rabin is not Steve Powell. We have established in our previous Yes sequence that Steve Howe is an almost, if not singular artist in terms of, of playing the guitar. Trevor Rabin is definitely not him. And so there is that striking difference right out, out of the gate. But that doesn't, and, and everyone knows who's listened to this, you know, knows that I'm a Trevor apologist. And as, as much as I've come to respect and appreciate Steve Howe, I will still choose Trevor Rabin every day of the week and twice huh. on Sundays, yeah. as they say, and and for no no defensible reason. That's just it, there. There's something about even though I recognize some of the 
shortcomings of Trevor. I just, I love what Trevor does. And Trevor has never done anything better than this either. Well, you know, it's interesting, Joe, you're bringing up thoughts in my head about the, the, just the massive amount of talent and skill that, that Trevor has. And when you think of somebody, you know, if somebody is going to replace Steve Howe next to Chris Squire and Alan White and is going to be in a band with John Anderson, you know, even though we probably didn't realize it just on the 90125 album itself, and, and certainly not Big Generator, the the depth of Trevor's talent, you know, is oh, yeah. is is certainly you know on par with what um, Steve Howe has to offer. And whilst while Steve's knowledge, well, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to compare it, like what we learn about Trevor in the later years of his composition and his, his movie music and all of that stuff, um, truly an artist in his own right. And, you know, I was, I was listening to this today thinking about how we were, we were gushing over power windows and the ability for rush to compose songs in a shorter form while still maintaining the progressive credibility that they have based on the way they were, they did the songs, the way they were written, the way they played. And I think that 90125 is exactly that same type of thing. It is all of the progressive rock cred packaged into these delicious, wonderful songs that, you know, that are for the most part radio ready. Yeah. And, I completely agree, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Paul, because uh, this this album is the epitome of just that, and it's it's very accessible, uh, but it's also it has a lot of integrity, and I'm wondering, like, you know, back in the day, you know, a, another theme that we've sort of talked about when we when we talked about Rush was, you know, during during their career, they would sort of change directions and, and people who were fervent rush fans were a little frustrated with them. Say take when they, you know, did signals or there, there've been various turns along the way. And when you look back, you, you, you love it. But if, when you're in real time, you, you maybe don't like that particular direction at that moment. I'm wondering if uh, I, I think 90125 is a lot more accessible than a lot of, say, the directions that maybe like Rush went in. I think that if you were a, I mean, at this time, what, I'm like 12 years old or something, so I, I can't really put myself in that spot. <laughs> um, but if you're real time listening to Yes in the 70s, the 80s roll around this album comes out, I still think you're going to love this album because it is so accessible. It gives you the best of both worlds and it just gives it to you right in the face. It doesn't, it doesn't ask you to participate like some other albums are, which is fine. We, we, we love those albums, right? You know, we love to sort of Mm -hmm. piece things together ourselves and that's part of the fun of progressive rock, but this gives you a depth but it also gives you a commercial aspect right off the bat that I think 
if you were a, a diehard Yes fan in during that time, you would still say, you know what, this is a lot more commercial, but it's damn good. So, I, I mean, I would maybe love to hear from any of our listeners who, you know, might have been in that period, um, maybe a little older than us, who, you know, any of their thoughts on this, because I think that the um, the general outlook on on this album would be a little bit different than some of the changes of some of the other bands that we talked about. Yeah, that that's that's a really great point, Tom. And and I would also be very, very curious to hear, you know, from someone who was you know cognizant at that time what their reaction was to this, and and to see if they accepted it right out of the gate or if it took them a little bit of time to to come around on it. So I, one little quick thing that I, I did find on, the, on the, the, the wiki page for this that I wanted to, to just bring in because I just find it fascinating is they actually have a little section on the sleeve design. And they say that the album's logo was designed and created by Gary Muat, apologies if I mispronounce your name, at assorted images on an Apple IIe computer. So nice. <laughs> that's... <laughs> can't, uh, you know, you can't get more creative cutting edge than that that's awesome and a variant would be used on yes's next studio album big generator i became involved as i'd work with with trevor horn when he set up the ztt record label uh moat told classic rock at this point the band were called cinema the original design was similar to the eventual sleeve but the elliptical gray y but with the elliptical gray y on its side and without the stick to make it a c so that was kind of cool, you know. This and and, and again, I, I I I really think it's important to think about the fact that this was never meant to be a Yes album. It, right. it was meant to be a cinema album, and I I want to our friend Kevin Mulrain on on the Yes Music podcast when he was talking about this album, I've heard him say at least once, if not a couple of different times. Trevor himself had said if he had known he was joining, yes, he would have approached the songwriting differently than he did. You know, when, when he was writing the songs for, you know, this album, it was it was not supposed to be a yes album. And, and you know, maybe maybe that also manifests itself in in the big generator differences. But again, we'll we'll get to that later. But I just well, yeah. when I heard Kevin say that, I was fascinated. We should put a pin in that one, Joe, because, you know, presumably he wrote Big Generator, you know, as thinking it was going to be a Yes album. Exactly. And, you know, look where that got us. So. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually love that album, but we'll talk about that um, another time. Okay, so shall we get into the uh, to the tracks here? And I would like to also point out quickly that. According to the wikis, this album is a very, very tight 44 minutes and 49 seconds. It's like everything about this album is perfect. Even the length is perfect. It could have been on a vinyl. Perfectly, perfectly cute for vinyl. It probably was on on vinyl. They, and Certainly. it's what it's one of the things that I haven't found on vinyl yet. I've been looking. I do have 9012 live, but I do not have 90125. And according to the wikis, the the track listing splits at uh, between changes and then cinema opens side B. 
So that's uh, that's some pretty solid sides of vinyl right there. Yeah. Here's some. Here's something I've always wondered. We all know that the name 90125 is after its catalog number, and I believe it's the Atlantic in the Atlantic collection, right? I don't know That's I correct. That right now. So know. much for my fun factoid, but go ahead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard, Paul. <laughs> always, always. So you should tell us what it's going to be beforehand so we don't spoil it, Tom. Well, I actually, while we're on the topic, I do know, uh, I do have something to add to that. Um, it was supposed to be called 89464, and that was to be the album catalog number. But they were two months late delivering the album. And so the new catalog number was 90125. Interesting. The, um... That's fascinating. Because there, uh, the wikis may disagree with you because I just happen to be reading about, about. Um, I guess what you're saying it was delayed, and these are saying that there was an error in the system. So this is this is what I would do at work. You know, if I if I was late getting something in, I would say something like, "Well, there was an error in the system, so um, you're getting it today <laughs> instead of." Well, we'll we'll have to. Um... We'll have to verify one way or the other because um, this was from a, a pretty solid source. But yeah, this will be interesting to see what we come up with. I am willing to go with it um, with you uh, on this one, Tom, because I'm just reading uh, the wikis here. The the wikis say that the the one title could have been the new Yes album, which would have just been terrible. Um, but I don't know at which point in time they're like, oh, wait, we could just call it 90125. Were you guys aware of all this kerfluffle with Tony K? No. I don't know. I don't think I was aware of any kerfluffle. I can't even say that word. Wishing to establish a new identity and distance themselves from their guest past, the four named themselves Cinema and began to record an album in 1982. However, clashes between Horn and K resulted in the latter's exit roughly mm. six months later. Raven saw it as a, quote, mutual parting as K resisted learning the modern keyboard technology that they were using, leaving Raven, leaving Raven to handle a majority of keyboard parts. News reports in June and July 1983 indicate that K, though he had played on the album, was unsure whether to rejoin. Hmm. Fascinating. That so is anyway. fascinating. And it appears that yeah. um, management didn't like Raven and Squire's lead vocals. And that's what brought John Anderson. These guys were yeah. so open. So they just want, there was this, this is like the Asia, right? Steve Howe got together with Jeff Downs and they said, let's get a powerhouse group together and make a commercial album with progressive rock superstars. They did the same thing here. God bless Tony K. All that motherfucker wants to do is wail away on the organ. I love it. Even in even in 1982, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to get onto a synthesizer. I I love it. You know, as I'm sitting here thinking about the 9012 live video, and I don't see a Hammond organ anywhere on that spaceshipy type stage. But that's you're right. But that's what he's playing. He's playing it. He's playing it like the same way. You just see him like yeah, riding up the keys and. 
<laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna see him in Philly, Paul. Him and his Hammond. We need. Him. We really need to take him to dinner. We should see if we can make that happen. <laughs> we should see if we can make that happen. So going into the uh, the tracks, then owner of a lonely heart. You know, it it starts the album. That you've got that that intro, and again in the in the Trevor Horn interview, which Paul, I hope on the the show notes you're going to link yes. to. You know, Trevor talks about trying to get that intro just right, and how they they ended up programming that that little drum bit intro, and how apparently Alan White wasn't very happy with that. And, and then it goes, you know, it, it, and it, I, that whole that whole clip really speaks to, you know, the 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 what Trevor really seemed to bring to this. And of course the, the story about John rewriting the, the rewritten lyrics for the second verse is hilarious as well as the, the, the gun blast that shoots John's Eagle out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, for me, that sort of adds a whole lot of texture because, you know, while this song is everywhere, this song is probably my least favorite on the album. Wow! Wow! Now that's and that's not negative, Joe. That's that's not to say I don't like it. So don't anyone misinterpret me. I love everything about this album, but maybe I've heard it too often. I I just I find other things in the other songs that excite me perhaps a little bit more, and in my experience. And while ARW comes as close as anyone, in fact, ARW comes very close. Generally speaking, this song does not translate well live. Mm, it doesn't. Because you know what? It's boring as hell. Um, the, the chord progression, it's such a produced, yeah. it's such a produced masterpiece with all of the little tidbits that are just waiting for you in there um, during the verse. And I never, I, I, as many times as I've listened to this song, I never know which one's coming next. There's like the, down, down, right? And then there's like the, with the bass. There's all these little treats in between the lines, and they are perfectly situated. And it, it really adds so much interest and character to the whole song that, um, the, and the sounds, the guitar, the, there must be like 17 different guitar sounds on in this mix. <laughs> and they all, there's, they're all wonderful. And there's just no way you could do it live because you, it just, it just, it's just a production masterpiece. And even the drums, like the, the way the drums are so tight and, uh, and the vocals, it's, it, I, it, I kind of understand what you're saying, Joe, about how it's sort of like the hit of the of the song or the album. And in some ways it's it's not as deep or or filled with uh, textures as some of the others, but from just the song and the and the production of it is just it's 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 iconic. And yeah. I mean, do you remember the Memorex commercials when they when they came when they brought out blank tapes? It was like this revolution of we're bringing out blank tapes so you can dub your records. And mm -hmm. they had that guy sitting in the chair with his scarf yeah. on, 
They were they. I don't know if that was the song that was the thing that they were playing. I think they were playing "Owner of a Lonely Heart" in that. And then there was a car stereo ad that had "Owner of a Lonely Heart" playing. I mean, it was it it, it may have been the best sounding production in 19, 1983. I I definitely agree, and I think you can say that. You say similar things about this whole album because I mean in the eighties a lot of these songs were on the radio a great deal. And I think this album may suffer of from from just being overlooked because of how radio friendly it was and a lot of people sort of dismiss it because it's like, oh the you know, you hear it on the radio. I mean I I remember saying something similar when we were talking about Rush that, um, uh, you know, Tom Sawyer is the same way. You sort of hear Tom Sawyer over and over again, but you still love it every time. But you, you sort of, you get numb to the fact that you get numb to the fact of how great it is because you, you are hearing it on the radio. And uh, you could say there's something similar about like, Led Zeppelin Four, you know all the songs that are on Zeppelin Four right. that we've heard. It's true, and those those songs just keep giving because they're, they're so good. But we get so sick of them. Yeah, um, like, you're right. Black Dog is a perfect. It's like probably the same as as this one, right? Right. Perfect right. example. Right. Different and the same, and and it's sort of iconic um, sense. But I, I think see that's the brilliance of this album to me is that you have songs that are on the radio like. Owner of a Lonely Heart, but you also have a lot of other ones that are on the radio on this album. And you can listen to them on the radio and hum along or whatever, but when you really listen to them, there is another level to it. And that is there's so much fun about this album from a production standpoint. And, you know, we're I know we're talking about Owner of a Lonely Heart right now, but when you go through this album song by song, there's even more... Uh, there's even more layers to some of these songs that are just absolutely brilliant. Mm. Gentlemen, owner of a lonely heart. As as much as I stayed away from yes during this period in 1983, 1984, 1985, I've come to appreciate owner of a lonely heart, even the mundane chord progression. And I think the dynamic between Rabin, Horn, and John Anderson worked lyrically. I like the fact Rabin starts with the kind of man asking a woman on a date and she doesn't want to go dancing. You know, if you believe the, the, the whole the, the whole story from Trevor Horn. But you get more altruistic John Anderson with a worldview and a, a kind of zen to his personality. And when he gets his hands on the lyrics, it becomes anyone in this universe could be a lonely heart. And I like that. I like the, the flip that happens, kind of the obvious Anderson treatment, you know, despite... The, the, the conflicts he got his way and he got his voice and he got that perspective into the song so i'd say a win all the way around nice 
Yeah, Kenny yeah, G, indeed, the first line of Trevor Rabin's version of Owner of a Lonely Heart starts out with, you don't want to go dancing. Um, <laughs> we were talking about, we were talking a little bit about Rush, and um, at this point in time, they were fucking around with Signals. I think they were supporting that that record. And comparison, you know, you, you know the comparison, the, 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 the sound is unbelievable. But one thing that, you know, we were talking about more comparing this to sort of the Power Windows and Hold Your Fire era. One thing that Yes was capable of doing in 1983, much better than Rush, was making a good music video for MTV. This is true. Mm. And Owner of a Lonely Hearts video, I thought was, um, it was as artistic as you can get at that time. And, and for such a simple song with a simple riff, the video was captivating. There was an eagle. The guy was getting beat up by some muscle guy from like Raiders of the Last Ark. And there were like power tools creating sparks everywhere and people walking around in the city. It was just such a great sort of mind screw. It was, it was a fun video and it was captivating and I wanted to see it every time it was on and it made the song that much better for me at, at you know, my young impressionable age then. Yeah, I can still picture the 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 one shot of that guy with his face all beat up walking through that crowd of people. Yes. And he jumps off the building and turns into the eagle. Mm. Great stuff. I am going to have to watch that video. I had it's been <laughs> years. It's been years since I've seen it and um, now I'm going to have to watch it in a new light. And seriously, how about the like buzzsaw guitar sounds that are in there? Nice, Ken. All through all throughout this song, the guitar tones are just delicious. And there's that buzzsaw sound that always comes in. And you don't even some parts, like even during the second parts of the verse, when it comes in, you almost don't even realize how righteous that tone is until you really stop and listen, because there's just so much else going on. That's so wonderful. I mean, I'm I, gosh, I'm just gushing. Now this song is incredible. <laughs> the solo really is great. Uh, I mean, what a meaty sound. He doesn't overplay. Uh, he just gives you like just a jagged razor blade. And it's not, it's very, to me, like un-80s. It's not like, I don't know if it really has any particular decade, but it's it's not a play-it-safe sort of solo. It's something that I don't think we've really heard before um, in that time, mind you. If you're yeah. listening to it in 1983, we haven't heard something like that before. I mean, so, I'm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Scrolling through... The records of the releases of 1983, you know, just looking at it from a guitar tone perspective, like the things that stand out to me are Billy Idol's Rebel Yell, Ozzy's Bark at the Moon. Nice. And um, 
Def Leppard's Pyromania. Hmm. All all righteous tones in their own right, but I but there is and and Ken, maybe you have something that that you know because I know this is your part of the show really. I don't think there's anything in 1983 or 84 sounding like 90125. I was thrilled to check out 1983 in the wikis for the progressive rock era because, for one thing, progressive rock is still alive at this point. It's more than alive. It, 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 it's alive and well, and it's in that, that commercial transition where it's, it's making money. So we, we had um, Genesis, Genesis. We had a uh, script for a gesture's tear. It was just an incredible year. You guys have that? Have that up? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, clear, clearly we've covered this already from different angles. It's, it's just wonderful. We could, it's like taking your, your bulldozer and driving over the same spot again and again, but it, it, <laughs> it deserves it. This period is the um, epicenter of the progressive flavor, probably because we were most impressionable as music listeners, as young teenagers. Well, you know, alongside of that, Peter Gabriel's Plays Live was released in 19, in June of 1983. That was a foundational album for me um, later on. You know, Ken, when you talk about being an impressionable uh, young person, I remember it was over like the Christmas holiday in 83 that owner of a lonely heart it may have been when owner of a lonely heart actually became the number one single right around that time and or however high it charted it was the number one single for me and i just remember on christmas break like hearing it all the time and being so gleeful every time i heard it because i just love the song and I had that's burned into my memory. It's so strange. Like I can remember driving home from church on Christmas Eve and, and hearing Lone, owner of a lonely heart on, on the radio. It's, it's really crazy. And then the following summer, I remember, you know, being at the shore at the beach at ocean city, Maryland with my, um, my cousins sitting on the beach and sitting on the, the balcony of, of the condo that we rented in the, in the afternoon listening to 90125. And that was the first time I had actually heard the entire album more than just Owner of a Lonely Heart and and select tracks from Pyromania. Um, what a wonderful, what a wonderful time in life. So so much for Owner of a Lonely Heart, you know, being my not, not favorite album song on the album. Because <laughs> we just spent <laughs> 35 minutes on it. <laughs> 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 this it, it really is an iconic song. I mean, it, it, this is well, like and, and I, so. Yeah, it's it's. I think what's important about it is that it's an iconic song. But listen to us. There's still so much to discover and talk about and and experience with this song. So yeah, uh, you know, it's it, it, there's a reason why it it expanded. You know, yes is notoriety. Yeah. It's and it started out horribly. And maybe that's the most amazing fact of it all. So hold on, you know, and, and owner of a lonely heart is is singular. It, it it's it's really a great way to open the album because 
you, you bought this new Yes album, you don't really know what to expect, and Owner comes out, and your brain kind of melts out of your head, and and, and then it it kind of settles in. Now, again, this the first half of this album is extraordinarily solid, and Hold On perhaps maybe gives you a little bit more of what you're looking at. Now you've got, and this really starts to to illustrate what one of the things that Trevor brings to the table, which is now you have three very strong vocalists and you have all of the permutations of how you mix and blend and switch back and forth between them and it just becomes yummy beyond belief the thing uh, the thing that really blows me away about this is is the it, believe it or not is how understated the guitars are throughout so much of the chorus and everything like he's got the big tasty riff in the middle and all of the solos and stuff like that um you know but throughout the chorus like he's playing some monster riffs like when you watch 9012 live like you see the monster riffs that he's playing and how big the guitar sounds and it's kind of understated in in the record and then you realize oh it's because he's got just this little voice um, belting through the chorus um, with the weight, take your time, see it through. I mean, it's him and Chris Squire. These these three harmonizing together it are it's an epic sound. It it really is. I mean, obviously, a lot of the sound of Yes was built around John and Chris. But you know, one of the things I, I one of the things I love about Trevor most is his voice. And so when you add that into that already existing base, it, it it's just fantastic. And it Ken gave us the thumbs way. up. So. Yeah, it blows me away to hear that, Joe, you said the execs were worried about just having Squire and Raven. I mean, yeah, Raven. That's that's what. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I mean, I'm 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 glad. Anderson was willing to do it because it, it, it paid off. But I swear Raven and Squire could have done a pretty damn good job. I, well, I want to say on Yes Years, they released the cinema version of, is it It Can Happen, I believe, where Chris sings the, the lead. And it's not quite as good. Yeah, it's, it's not great. The demo is not great either. It's another half song. It's amazing. In, in terms of hold on, it, it's it. I, I want to say it's it's a twelve eight rocker. It's got kind of like bum 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 the country yeah. shuffle underneath it, and it, it's just funny how you get the African songwriter, but he's contributing kind of an American cowboy beat somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> this well, has become but, but, a, a hobby for me to get that. I love the twelve eight in Easter or the six eight or whatever mm. it is three four. I'm constantly looking for that. So I did find it in this album, <laughs> in the second track. I do like it when when the, the guitars and bass come in big after the verse on this and just kind of kick you in the face for 10, 15 seconds, and then they kind of back off a little bit. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. yeah and there's nothing better than, you know, after a fade out of the song before it, you know, the song before, before it fades out, like Owner of a Lonely Heart than just a ball crushing drum intro like there is on this on this one. Yummy. Yes. 
being a sucker for for big choruses, I mean, how can I not like this song? And it just feels so good when they go into this chorus. And uh, I mean, it's you know when you hear this song after "Owner of a Lonely Heart" that you're on a different playing field because both these songs are just very satisfying. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's, it's just you're just you know poppy, but it's it's a very fun poppy. I mean, it's just like you're just having fun with it. You know, it's it, it's a it's a different level, but it's you're just really enjoying it. And I, all I can say is this is this is a great follow up to Owner of a Lonely Heart. Yeah, I mean, this album just it, it goes in and it it really doesn't it doesn't take a breath until after cinema. I would say that cinema is the breath. I mean, well, well, I guess we'll get to that, but (laughs) we'll get to that. But yeah, hold on. It's, it's anthemic. It's, it's, it's monster. It's, it's wonderful. And then we move into yes, Paul. Uh, No, I was just wondering, do, do any of you know, this was a single as well, wasn't it? Um, yes, I can look at that. I believe it was. The singles are listed. The singles for 90125 were Owner, Leave It, It Can Happen, and Hold On. Hold On was released in November 1984. It was the last sing- single on the uh, the record. Yeah, Again, this is one of the songs that you hear a lot on the radio still. And it, 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 just, it just keeps giving. You know, you, you can hear it on on a different level than yeah you know depending on what you're doing you know you it's it's just it's just a great song i have deep memories of this song i was at some point in time when i was dating the former mrs otter and i would drive to her house over the holidays from school and I was I was utilizing a, a cassette tape that on one side had nine oh one two five and the other side big generator. And I think I had the most fun singing hold on. Cause there's just something about the chorus. You it's so hopeful, right? It's so It is, yeah. It gives you that just something to hold on to, no no pun intended. Um it was just it. I think it's it may be my favorite song to sing of 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 both of these albums when I'm driving in the car down 476. Well, and and you know, let's we we've we've sort of had fun at John's expense in previous episodes, but I think it's it's that sort of John's positive energy that that we're sort of responding to here, and I. I suspect, I don't know, that the fact that a lot of the songs were in place when John came in and John couldn't spread his his magic moth dust everywhere, <laughs> but, but just in certain places, that I think it's it's more judicious. And I think maybe that's part of what, because you, you feel that, you respond to it, but it's not so much that you get, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us into It Can Happen. What I find interesting is when you're listening to the first verse and 
you know, the production here, Trevor kind of takes everything out into sort of this semi-spacey realm. And, and in a lot of ways, it presages, I think, some of the things that we're going to hear on Big Generator. But it, it's it's removed. It's distant. And then all of a sudden, the, the pre-chorus comes in, and Chris Squire is just in your face with the bass and singing, and you're like, oh, yeah! <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if it was one of those things that I, I really ever paid attention to prior, but when I was, you know, prepping for this, and I'm, I'm you know, trying to pay attention to certain things, and it was like, yeah, that's, that's a really cool, you know, thing that Trevor Horn just did there, and I like it. Similar to Owner of a Lonely Heart, there's so many different elements happening and there's a, such a great bass, you know, between the slide bass that's going on and then the do 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 You know, all these elements are happening. And, and Trevor Horn and John Anderson saved this. I mean, this, this could have been a track right off of Open Your Eyes um, <laughs> had it not been for those two. Oh. And, I mean, it, it, is, it is such a great great song and um i think this is another fun one to sing too at the at the end with the big guitar and the recapitulation of the first verse and the yeah da, 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 in the background i mean it is just the layers of of the elements in in this tune just just make it so brilliant i can't believe how gushing i am over this album i love it it's a great album. You know, Paul, you brought something up. Yeah, I mean, you brought... Actually, both of you guys brought up Chris, uh, Chris Squire. And I think this is, I believe, like the first time we've heard Chris Squire in like a songwriting setting where he's... It's he's everything he's doing is very tasteful. I mean, he, he's always tasteful, but he's tasteful in other ways when he's like in a complete jam <laughs> and they're just complete rocking out or they're or they're just doing something crazy. Uh, this is an example. This is what really makes a great player great is when you can when you know that a song is not solely about your instrument. And he knows uh, not how how not he, he knows where not to play, and he doesn't overplay in certain in certain situations. And these songs have a, a perfect amount of space. All these songs on every single song on this album, it just has the right amount of space. It just gives you time to absorb the just like the large production that you're in. And Chris Squire. We all know that he can play all sorts of great stuff and 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 do things that few human beings can even dream of on on the bass. But he this album, it's just so tasteful. And you still have that large, beefy bass sound, but you're not really thinking about Chris Squire, which you really shouldn't be. You should be thinking about the songs. And right. It's just these guys all came together on this. And again, this is a uh, props to Trevor Horn. Uh, but they all came together to make just really great songs. Yeah. And, 
you know, that's, you just said it, Tom, they all came together and maybe that's why maybe they should have called it the new yes album because, you know, we've talked a lot when we've talked about yes, about how, how the band is at its best when everyone is contributing and everyone is involved in, in changing the song and deciding on how the song should go. And particularly when you think about, you know, if you listen to the demo of it can happen and, and where, where it started and where it went. And when you listen to the demo of owner of a lonely heart, and you, if you figure that that's happening through all of these songs, it's really what makes them so great. You're getting these great parts that are being written the very best parts of Chris Squire, the very best parts of Trevor Rabin. And just when you think, you know, you can't go any further, you dial in the very best parts of John Anderson and Trevor Horn is kind of conducting the whole thing. And, um, you know, it really, you know, when you, when you think about it from that perspective, they did all come together and it's probably why all of these songs are just so good. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that is, is very well said. That brings us to changes. This, and I already mentioned the story that that Trevor Rabin tells on the Yes Years video, where he talks about you know the 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 singing structure here and the shared vocals with John was was not anyone's master plan. It's just sort of the way it, it worked out. But you get you know so you get Trevor singing and then John singing and it and it's all wonderful and the production is absolutely beautiful and. And I mean, it's 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 a really really tight song, and it makes sense, and it, it flows, and it it's all wonderful. The the vocals are great, the lyrics are great, all the the sounds are wonderful. And it, in about four minutes, it sounds like we're gonna go into a fade out, and you're wholly satisfied at this point. You have everything from this song that you really could possibly need, and then. Ladies and gentlemen, let's introduce you to Trevor Rabin, vocal god. When he comes in with that freaking, for some reason, you're questioning why line. And and this is, I, I think this is really what I just love about Trevor. And, and Paul, I heard you say this years and years ago. Trevor is a phenomenal vocalist on his own. And John Anderson has, a, you know, the voice of angels and everything else. But there are times when Trevor just goes balls out vocally. And it, it's, it's transcendent. And I just, I freaking love it. And what's amazing to me, like I said, so at this point, the, the song could have ended and you'd be okay. But instead, you get this, this glorious you know, Trevor vocal declaration. And what, what struck me about it in the last couple of days, as I was listening to this, and, and I think it kind of applies to the whole album because I started, I, I wasn't anticipating this, but after that, suddenly you're left with Alan. Alan White is, is, is also kicking your ass. Yes, he is. And you, and, and you start listening to what Alan has been doing throughout all of this. And much in the way that, Tom, you were talking about, you know, we Chris Squire is is doing the things that need to be done. And you're not but you're not really focusing in on him. And, and Trevor is relatively understated in terms of, of the guitar playing. As I started to pay attention to Alan White on this album, 
he is, and and, and I, I specifically made the, the the comment in the setup, you know, coming out of of drama about him and Chris being, you know, at the height of their their rhythm section powers. Alan does phenomenal. I think, and it'd be interesting to have Jay here. I think Alan does phenomenal work on this album as a whole. I think it's it's it's. It's it's really really interesting, but not overwhelming. Uh, I just I I was surprised when I found myself looking for what what's Alan doing here and being pleasantly surprised throughout the entire album. Yeah, Joe, I just got chills when you were talking about that because it was just today that I was listening to this on the way to work. When I listened to this part, and the same exact thing struck me. He he's like hitting one massive hit on the tom, and then he's doing this like snare roll, and it's so it's incredible. And you're you're so right. He is he is masterful on this album, and it makes all the difference in the world. And the thing that's there's so many differences between the tones of the drums, just like the guitars, whatever the song calls for. Um. You know, between, you know, I don't know how much guidance he's getting from, you know, Trevor Horn or, you know, what their discussion is like around this. But his execution on this album and the way he plays, you're, you're absolutely right. It makes all the difference in some of these tunes. I know I, I thought that Alan White was at his peak when we covered drama. It was quite a while ago, so I'll just say it again. Alan White was at his peak when he recorded drama. The, he, the, the way he handles the odd times is very fluid, beautiful. Uh, additionally, um, that, that, that's a guy that I didn't like. He was too heavy on the cymbals. He was animals from the Muppets. He wasn't Bill Bruford. <laughs> he wasn't right. He was just the wrong guy for the job. And then he turns into a masterful player. It's just a wonderful story. Mm. Um, the, the arc... The arc of, um, I love to talk about the arc of musicians, but the arc of Alan White uh, uh, is wonderful in this period. So I will concur with you guys. And despite the fact that Alan White hated the tuned up snare drum in Owner of a Lonely Heart, yeah. getting the note A, the high A, I will say that, that once they got to the Trevor Horn uh, celebratory concert, I think it was 2004, what? Um, if you guys can see that on, on YouTube, um, God, Alan just, just does wonders with that tuned up snare drum in the, in the live show. Uh, so, so, so wonderful just to hear that opening snare fill into owner. So yeah, when, when I had that sort of revelation about Alan White, it was, it was very, very exciting. And I, it, it, it took a song changes that I have always loved a lot and made it that much more interesting for me. Yeah, that's an awesome call out, Joe. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm just gonna sound like a broken record, so you can edit this out if you want. But you know, the differences in guitar tones in the song, you know, even in the beginning, you get, you know, when it breaks through that instrumental part, you know, the the odd time signature part at the beginning, and it breaks into the the straight ahead beat, and you hear the the guitar is like. There's absolutely no reverb. It sounds like it's right against your head and it's popping out. And then you get this clear, beautiful, 
tone that has such a beautiful wash of reverb that you almost can't even hear the 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 notes being fretted. The um, I mean, oh, the 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 contrast between those sounds are just like ah, oh, so good. It's so good. And then we go into uh, so now we're going to flip the vinyl over and we'll have cinema. And and so so Tom, you had talked about this being sort of the breath. Now, cinema is. I remember when I I got nine one two five, which probably would have been after Big Generator, and I I just I fell in love with cinema. I thought it just kicked my ass all over the place. And here again, I, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but a lot of that has to do with Alan White on this particular track. But one of the things that we talked about when we were doing our Rush segment was this idea of the instrumental giving you a chance to sort of catch your breath in the middle of an album. Perhaps Yes had done that, you know, through some of the long songs with the long instrumental passages, not necessarily a, an instrumental song. But here we have, you know, something that, that sort of captures, I think, maybe what this band would have been had John not rejoined. And, you know, I, I personally just, I, I revel in this i just kind of get down and roll around in it and think it's wonderful i i have no problem with the song i i i i like it i was just more referring to the fact that it's uh much more shorter length as well and yes you know it's it is different from the other song so it just it does give you that breath and it's it's funny i actually i would uh Paul, I too was listening to this in the car, and when I got to cinema, I looked down uh, at the screen and I was like, "Oh, cinema, okay." I'm listening to it, and I blinked, and it was over. So that probably shows you how how great it is because it's actually it goes by very quickly. Um, but you know, it's it's a great piece of music. But I think for me, and you know, we'll get to this in a you know in a few seconds but uh, leave it is my favorite song on the album so i think in my head i'm looking forward to leave it so much i sort of pass over cinema because you know leave it is probably just one of the, the greatest you know pop rock songs on the planet if you will but um no i mean cinema is great that's awesome that you you said that tom because the only reason I really got into cinema was because I was trying to fast forward to leave it. <laughs> <laughs> and every, every time, like I would try to stop it guessing and I would get close, right? And I would hit play again and it would be on that like vicious pick slide at the end of leave it. He's like, like, I don't even know how he gets that sound. Nice. And I would and I would hear that and I'd be like, oh man, what I gotta hear more of that. And I'd rewind it further. And before <laughs> you know it, I was listening to cinema before Leave It because it was it was just so badass. Here's here's the, the sort of irony of of the story here, because cinema goes right into Leave It. Leave It is is phenomenal, but here again, you know, the lore has it. This is the first yes song ever recorded you know, using a drum machine. 
And, and again, when the story is told in yes years, Alan doesn't seem that particularly pleased by that fun little factoid. And and the irony comes in in that, you know, cinema, which immediately precedes this, shows Alan White just slaying nonstop throughout that entire song. And then, <laughs> and then you come into this. But, you know, that being said, even with the, the program drums on this, I think they're extraordinarily well done and it doesn't. I don't find it jarring at all. In fact, I, I love it when, you know, they have those, those really emphatic snare hits that, that come in and just, you know, kind of slap you around a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, nobody cares except Alan White pretty much. Um, which I, which I, it's funny. So, you know, last fall I, I spent some time recording some drums and my friend Paul Lanahan was playing the drums and we were doing this one song and and the ones and it's really not a song that's fully baked. So we were just kind of guessing at what, you know, what we thought the drum part would be. And after we spent like a couple a couple Wednesday nights putting the tracks together, I was like, okay, we've got it. We we're good. You know, we can move on. And we were talking at the end of that night, and I and I mentioned something like, and I said, hey, worst case scenario. You know, I can always program some drums in the parts that, you know, you know, if I if I change my mind and the look on his face when I said that was like <laughs> it was like I was ripping his heart out. Like he just was like, no, he's like, you're not going to do that. And, um, you know, so from from that, that perspective, like you can totally understand like Alan White not not being happy about that. But, you know, who cares? The song has nothing to do with drums. Um, the 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 vocals the thing i love about leave it is like the bed of vocals underneath i don't know i i don't know but it doesn't sound to me like there's any john anderson in the like the bed of vocals where he's singing over on the verse it sounds like it's all trevor and chris squire and i love it i think it 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 sounds terrific and trevor's lead in this and John Anderson's lead in this and, and just all of the, the washing vocals and the keyboards and the very sparse, but very important guitars. See, I, I just want to say, I'm, I'm probably going to be giving yes a hard time from here on out because a lot of the, these gang vocal, you know, issues that, that come up. I just want to say, this album probably has the best sounding vocal mix of more than one person. This is the perfect example of what to do. Like it, it, my ears are just so happy when I hear these three voices together and it's not, it sounds big, but it's not overdone. Uh, you know, some people might think so, but you know, I, I'm an, I'm an 80s kid. I like these sort of sounds. So, um, but it's not so overdone that you can't hear anything. And I think that, yeah. you know, I'll keep it on a, a good note here, but I think that yes, sort of went just banana ape shit on a lot of these, you know, later albums. And they just, you know, just had everyone just sing along and um, you know, I know we sort of make fun of the whole the whole Getty voice thing too, and 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 
even in our stuff, I know uh, I'm guilty of it too. And Paul, you talked about it, you were guilty of it too on sure. in our own stuff. Um, so it's not like it's unheard of to do. And we all know the pratfall of that 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 happens when you have recording equipment and you know people are you know doing track after track after track and you say hey let's let's see what it sounds like when all these tracks are together but this these songs and i mean especially leave it but i mean really again any song on this album it's just done perfectly it's just like a perfectly done filet mignon and it's just this is I know they got it right. So I, I want to tell you guys as much grief as I'm going to give them for a lot of other stuff after this, this is how it's done. And leave it is a prime example of that. Nice, Tom. Yeah, man. That's cool. Wow. And, and you know, like, I don't know. I think that whenever you have all of those tracks, Tom, Mm-hmm. And you were like, ooh, let's hear how they all sound together. I think undoubtedly it always sounds better. You know, like I pref- I much prefer nine of my, of my backing vocals to one of my backing vocals. <laughs> A chorus of Paul's? What? <laughs> yeah. You know, but, you know, that's not always what the song requires, you know. Right. And, and I think that whether it was Trevor Horn or just the fact that they were all invested and they were all doing it, like – you know, they, they had in this stage, there were enough of them in, in the, in the, in the control room to kind of keep it to the levels of sanity to say, yeah, we don't need all those or, or this is what we need. And it it sounds great. And I remember the video for this, it was just the five of them standing. There was like 12 versions of the video. There was just five of them standing and singing. And, and when you listen to the, to the track, you can believe that it's just five guys singing. It doesn't seem like it's, you know, an infinite track listing of, you know, these guys, these guys singing. It sounds like it's just the five of them. Yeah. Yeah. I went down the web rabbit hole a few months ago and, uh, yes, leave it rock in Rio 1985 was the only live version I could find. So it's possible they didn't do a lot of live versions, either didn't record or release the live versions, or maybe botched a few. But I'm so glad that one survived. It's not perfect, but it just shows that they did this live, and it has great energy to it. Um, it, it makes me love the song even more. Makes me wish that ARW would do it. I swear to God, if, if you if you went Lou Molino and who's the other guy, Joe? Um, I, I, they, they, that would they, be Lee Pomeroy, the guy that Lee nobody Pomeroy. can remember his name. <laughs> I swear, with between Molino and Pomeroy and their voices, and obviously Anderson and 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 uh, Rabin, you know, Wakeman doesn't sing, but you know, you got four guys. Man, can't you do leave it with four guys? I'd love to hear that. Probably. Ken, for your information, Leave It does appear on the 9012 Live video release. This brings us then into what, what I like to think of as the, the, the back part of the album. The, uh, the, the part of the album that initially I didn't get, but I've grown to absolutely love the back half of this album. So we have our song, City of Love and Hearts. 
And the re reason why I grouped them all together just to, to for this intro part, and this is as close as I'm going to come to a complaint about this album, all three of these songs have very similar keyboard parts. Mm. <laughs> and after, you know, one, it's one of those things where once you figure that out, you can't unhear it, and it, it you know, it's just, huh. I wonder why that is. It's it's definitely deceiving. I, I I mean, if we're talking about our song in particular, it starts off, and the first thing you think of, you're like, uh oh, this is where things are going to go south. Right. It it doesn't. It almost reminds me of like one of those like, you know, cheesy Survivor songs from like the '80s, like with the the keyboard sound or whatever. And then you're like, oh no, this is this is going to be good. But then they just they they sort of turn into yes almost and you're it feels so good when it's sort of sculpted into something of substance as opposed to what you would normally hear from the sound. Uh, it's very deceptive, but it's it's deceptive in a um, satisfying way because it goes a different way than you would normally think. And so, uh, and then of course, the rest of the song is is just takes you in a great place, with uh, with with the chorus and all that. But yeah, I mean, I I think that um, the fact that it's sort of it's like a plot twist almost. This song, um, you think it's going to go in a certain direction, and you're you're so happy that it goes in another direction. You're you're relieved. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right because it, it could have, and and I think for me, what what really drives this song, uh, I mean, the the chorus and everything else is great, but I I think this is really the, you know, and we're what seven seven tracks in at this point, and all of a sudden it's like Chris Squire says, "Hey, wait a minute, boys, I'm the fish, and I'm still here." <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know and 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 but in keeping with the overall theme of 90125 while he goes chris squire on you on this song it's not over the top it, it's it's just enough to remind you that yeah chris squire's here <laughs> don't forget that you've got you know arguably you know the greatest bass player ever and he's standing right over here and you know he can he can bring it when he needs to. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great call out, Joe, cuz he is a monster on this song. I um to me, this is the most if I could use this term, this is the most yesish song on the whole album, right? If you think about all of the previous yes albums, to me, our song is the one that sounds the most like a yes song. Hmm. With those keyboards, it could almost be on Tormato. Oh, did I go there? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. I couldn't resist. That's the best part about this album, though. It's like, even in its greatness, it's teetering on, like, this could have been from Open Your Eyes, and this kind of sounds like Tormato. Like, it's, like, teetering on the tragic, yet it maintains its uh, triumphantness. 
Well, and, and you know, Paul, that's that's an interesting thing. And, and the interesting thing about that, while I hear exactly what you're saying, and, and you know, it, it's it's like you can see the, the drop-off out your window, this album never comes close to that. Hmm. Yep. I mean, we've, we've covered some albums in the course of the palaver where, you know, it's just like, you know, it, let's, you know, the back half of Test for Echo. What happened there? You know, this 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 album never even, it, it, you can see it, but it never comes close. And and I think that, that makes it all the more remarkable. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. Can I take a dig at Tony K real quick here? <laughs> if you oh, must. No. Because you guys already owe him dinner so what damage can i do <laughs> um <laughs> well it's funny because um we've all heard the term cultural appropriation whether that's rush ripping <laughs> off chinese culture or you know even it can happen there's kind of an indian hindu ripoff happening there and constantly the brits and the americans are ripping off the third world in one way or another and I would say that in our song, there is cultural appropriation, but that's Tony K trying to rip off Rick Wakeman <laughs> from Tormata. So take <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> well, Trevor Rabin, you know, cultural appropriation, like 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 how much South Africa is in his stuff. Now, now you can say. He's from there, but still, there, there's a little bit of that, you know, Peter, Peter Gabriel-esque uh, South Africa vibe happening there, too. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, our, I think our song is a surprisingly high point on this, because you're right, Tom, it's not necessarily what you expect, but it, it's it's as wonderful as anything else on here. Yeah. Yeah. And then we go to City of Love, which is a different beast altogether. And yeah. dare I say it, it is Paul, you, you have some thoughts? <laughs> yeah, so for me, this is the one slight maybe crack in the pavement in the 90125 album here. Although, you know, listening to today, I didn't really find it as offensive as I thought it was going to be. However, I think... City of Love provides. <laughs> Wait, what did you say? Again? Sorry, sorry. You have to go back and listen to the Trevor Horn. Oh, I think City of Love provides a little bit of the foreshadowing of what is going to come about in the next couple of albums that seems to have already gotten Tom's goat. And um, and definitely, you know, the chorus in this song to me is a bit over the top, loud with voices, and dare I say, foreshadows an expression that we will use later, which will be uh, too many Trevors. <laughs> Can there be too many Trevors? He's no Getty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah paul I, I can hear this song on 
than their their next record. Yeah. Uh, and I I agree with you. Now, how great would it be, Paul, if you switched Love Will Find Its Way Wow. and this song, then you would have the perfect, perfect album. I mean, 90125 is, is almost pretty perfect, as perfect can come. But if they switched these two songs, it would even be better. That's a fascinating idea, Tom. Wow. Because I don't think Love Will Find a Way um, deserves the album that it, that it's on. But we'll talk about that later. Wow, we'll get to I, that I think later. that's a fantastic song. And I think that that was almost, it feels like it was left over from, from this album. Yeah. But I, getting back to the point of the song, uh, I do agree with you on that front. It's If I had to name my least favorite song it would probably be this one but it, it still flows pretty well and you're you're still you know you're you're still having fun with it so uh, it doesn't go too far south that um, we can't regain ourselves um after yeah yeah i mean the the fact that the first line of this song is once bitten twice shy no 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 regrets at all Makes me wonder. I think Trevor may have written these lyrics. And um, it's hard to tell, though. It just it just doesn't seem to have the same, you know, whatever that all of the other tracks have on this album. And I don't mean to make this sound as a joke. My favorite part about this song is the very end. Um you know, where it ends with that, just that one big, like, fake orchestra hit, string hit, because it kind of has that reverb, and it just, like, hangs you there in 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 the abstract until you hear that little flute sound come through at the beginning of Hearts, and it's just like, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm with you, Tom. Not my favorite one on, this, on the album. Right. So, Paul, just, just for clarity's sake the writers listed for city of love are rabin and anderson okay so while he may not have redone the first line chances are john had a hand in at least some of the uh the yeah. words in that song yeah this one might have sounded good on talk as well we could we can try that we can think about that yeah, huh. that may that may have been interesting. I personally kind of like it. It it isn't a song that I liked initially. It, it took me some time, but there's something to be said for John Anderson getting a little gritty. Hmm. That I kind of like here, and and you know, along with the gritty theme, Trevor's got some just dirty, nasty guitar sounds going here as well, which. I also appreciate that is true that is true and and in terms of the structure oftentimes and you see this with um make it easy which was on the yes years box set which i believe came from these sessions as well make it easy is a perfect example of a song that has you know builds up fantastic tension in the verses and then it just all dissipates into a flatulent mess in the chorus <laughs> it's true like make it easy is is almost 
the same way that, you know, owner of a lonely heart and it can happen was. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just, yeah. Yeah. So, so like I said, I, I love the verses of, of make it easy. I think it's spectacular, but the chorus is such a letdown. And mm. what I find with this is, you know, the, the verses, it, it's not quite as much musical tension, but they, they do build some tension and the chorus is not a letdown. It's much more even in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And that leads us to hearts. I don't even know where to begin with hearts because I could probably do an entire episode just on hearts. It was one of those songs where, again, I, I never really paid much attention in the beginning when I got this album to these last three songs. And then there was, I don't even know what it was. But there was some magical moment where hearts and, and its import and its, its, its beauty just was revealed to me. And after that, I was done. I, I personally think this song is as yes a song as you're going to find in the broader definition on this album. And I just, I, I, I love where it takes me. I love everything I hear about it. It's just, I this song is phenomenal to me. I think uh, the thought I had this today is that I thought that this song was the most yes-sounding song um, in a traditional sense, and um, it, it sort of takes you unexpe unexpected places that traditional yes songs take you but it, it does it in more of a commercial aspect uh, um i can see this on on other albums a little bit more than i can see other songs on it but this is a again yeah i mean it's you know a lot of times bands will bury you know the not so great song at the end or whatever you know just to to keep the good stuff in the front but I mean, this this is a really solid song. Yeah, it's it's beautiful, and um, you know, something that I noticed today that was just that you know, and and you know, again, it's just the love fest of Trevor Horn here. Is that you know, in the in the verse, the opening verse, when Alan White starts coming in, and he comes in with this this just giant Tom hit. I mean, it's just a, I mean, huge. There's like this, there, there's, and I don't think I, I ever really thought about this before just because I'm older and I just, you know, because I've done more recording or whatever, I don't know, it just what made me think of this. But it's almost like he's got this slight little, um, almost like a spring reverb on, on that hit. And so... It's instead of it just being like a boom, it almost sounds like, and it's just like it is, it's just so subtle, it's almost not even there. You almost don't even hear it, but it just, it just, it's one of those little tiny things that just adds something so intangible to that you, that you know, you can listen to it for years and years and years and never even hear it. And, yet, and then one day it just hits you and you're just like, holy shit, this is awesome. And um, 
Yeah, I, this this song this song is just beautiful, and I had missed this song for a very long time. You know, I, I think Joe at one point in time, um, you know, you had mentioned to me how much you loved it. This was maybe after even you moved to Texas, and I was like, "Wow, I have to go back and listen to that one." And um, and then I was like, "Holy crap, this song is amazing." Um, but I guess that's what happens when you put it after um, "City of Love" on uh, on the record. Yeah, <laughs> that's that is the danger. Yes, the whole team is on board for writing credits. It's nice in three tracks on this album, Parts, Our Song, and Changes. Alan White has songwriting credit. Uh, that you know lends credence to the band effort. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't simply Rabin and Trevor Horn holed up in a studio calling all the shots. They took the time to involve everybody and paid off. I mean, you know, if the record company wants Anderson to come back, you might as well give him a seven-minute song. It's the least you can do. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, and, and you know, I again, I think that goes back to what we talked about late in, in the first part of the, the yes sequence, when, when all five members, and in this particular case, we'll throw in Trevor Horn as, as an honorary sixth, but when all the members of the band are engaged in creating music together, something magical happens. And, you know, when, when two of, and this seems to be the way it usually happens. The the other way that al- yes albums come together is two of them will sort of split off on on their own and create something and bring it back to the to the collective, and that does not always work so well. Right. So you can point you can point to tales, you can point to um, talk. I think you can certainly point to open your eyes. As as examples of of when that happens, and and that's not to say that you know uh, there's a lot on talk that I really really like, but it it doesn't approach close to the edge. It doesn't approach going for the one, and it doesn't approach nine zero one two five. Agreed. And you know I, I I'll I'll take a, another little side trip here just for fun, and I need to throw this out on, on Twitter as sort of an extension of this Tormato conversation that we've had. And I, I think I talked with you guys on the, the text about that as well. There, there was a certain, there was a similar magic on going for the one with Rick Wakeman coming back. And as I, I think it's sort of the same here with, with John Anderson coming back in and, and everything else. And whether you love it or don't love it or whatever, Tormato doesn't capture that, for me, that same sort of magic. It might be a good album, but it's not a magical album. And and what I find wait, funny... Wait, 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 hold on. Did you just say Tormato was a good album? I said it might be. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm respecting your clarity. opinion, Tom. Let's get some clarity. What are your thoughts here, Joe? I'm not saying that it is, but I appreciate that you think it's a good album. I th- I personally think Tormato is far inferior to Going for the One and Drama, for that matter. But what what I find interesting 
is again i picked up a, a bunch of of rick wakeman vinyls and one of them is rick wakeman's criminal record which was released in 1977 presumably after going for the one i haven't checked out what the exact timing is but on the first side of that album the the, the tracks feature chris and alan and it's not it clearly is not at the level of going for the one in terms of, of that magic, but there's some of that there. And presumably it's not at the level of going for the one because you don't have all five of them. You need you need that critical mass to get the yes magic. A, a Rick Wakeman solo record with just three of them doesn't have that critical mass, but it has... There, there's some aspect of, of what happened on, in 1977 that translates there. And from my perspective, by the time they went back and started recording Tormato in 1978, whatever had been there had dissipated. So I, I put that out there as, as a semi-tangible evidence of, of this this magic that sometimes happens with yes. And I think 90125 is a shining example of that magic. Amen, brother. I'm by that. As will I. Awesome. So, so much for reining ourselves in because we have <laughs> knocked out another, another two hours on, on a single album. I, I really thought there wouldn't be much to talk about because we'd all just go, yep, this, this is awesome and move on. But there was there was a lot to uh, to gush over here. Um, so we will put a pin uh, in 90125. Uh, I, I will ask if there are any sort of closing thoughts to summarize our experience with this record. Uh, I, I would just like to say, I know I sound like a broken record, as well, but um, I think as this, I mean, this is probably their their biggest selling record, right? I mean, this is like that's what the wiki say. Okay, so I think that being said, it's unappreciated in in a, in an artistic way, and I think that. Because we hear these things on the radio, we we just we there's a, there's a certain stigma to these songs, and it's unfortunate. I mean, I've done it myself, so I, I'm sort of feeling guilty. I'm glad that I've sort of um, exercised these sort of commercial demons, <laughs> and <laughs> I, you know, I, I I have so much of like a, a prejudice sometimes on certain music, um, and. I'm so glad to have come back to this album later, later in life, and have been able to appreciate these because uh, this is a remarkable album. This really is a remarkable album, and um, I, I, I can't say enough of this. Not just in the Yes catalog, but I mean, this is staple of the '80s. I mean, this is like uh, I mean. This is a progressive rock album that is a part of people's you know, experience in the 80s. So I, we can't always say that. So this is sort of a, 
a win-win-win situation, and I'm 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 just thrilled with this album. Yeah, I mean, for me, like I think we we just kind of we just kind of talked through it. You know, like we mentioned in the lessons learned episode. You know, yes, the you know the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, and this album again is a shining example of that, and um, and that you know the the level of collaboration mixed with the desire to to want to achieve something mixed with the absolute courage that you said which is exactly what it is joe it's artistic courage to say yes you can change my song you can make it different um because i think it'll be better at the end um even if i don't think it's better right now you know i'll trust that that you know everyone else is right it is is the greatest lesson for any artist to uh to um to take hold of so that's it awesome yeah gentlemen thank you so much this has been spectacular nice work joseph Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We have very much enjoyed returning to the back half of the Yes catalog. And as always, we look forward to your thoughts and comments as we, the Progressive Palaver, help join you and the entire Yes community in celebrating 50 years of this spectacular band. You can reach out to us through the usual means of communication. We are available on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as Progpala or you can search for us at Progressive Palaver, or you can email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. As always, Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on both iTunes and Google Play, and we are hosted on SoundCloud. Until next time, thanks for listening. 